Chapter Nine of Hands of Iceland by Victor Hugo, translated by Abby Langdon Alger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sonia. Chapter Nine. Juliet, oh, thinks thou we shall ever meet again? Romeo, I doubt it not, and all these woes shall serve for sweet discourses in our time to come. Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. The signal light at Munkholm Castle had just been extinguished, and in its place the sailor entering Tontheim Fjord saw the helmet of the soldier on guard gleam from afar in the beams of the rising sun like a planet moving in its orbit, when Schumacher, leaning on his daughter's arm, came down as usual into the garden which surrounded his prison. Both had spent a restless night. The old man unable to sleep, the maiden kept awake by happy thoughts. They walked in silence for a time. Then the aged prisoner said, fixing a sad and serious gaze upon the lovely girl, You blush and smile at your own thoughts, Ethel. You are happy, for you have no cause to blush for the past, and you smile at the future. Ethel blushed still deeper, and her smile faded. My lord and father, she stammered in confusion, I brought the volume containing the Edda. <sighs> Very well. Read, my daughter said schumacher and he resumed his meditations then the melancholy captive seated on a black rock shaded by a dark fir listened to his daughter's sweet voice without heeding the words which she read as a thirsty traveller delights in the murmur of the stream that quenches his fever ethel read him the story of the shepherdess alanga who refused the king until he proved himself a warrior prince ragnar lodbrok could not win the maid until he returned triumphant over the robber of klipstadur ingolf the destroyer suddenly a sound of footsteps and the rustling of the foliage interrupted the reading and roused schumacher from his reverie lieutenant dahlefeld appeared from behind the rock upon which they sat ethel's head drooped as she recognized their tormentor and the officer exclaimed if faith fair lady your lovely lips just uttered the name of ingolf the destroyer i heard you and i presume that you were talking of his grandson hans of iceland and that reminded you of him. Ladies love to talk of robbers. By the way, there are tales of Ingolf and his descendants which are both fearful and interesting. Ingolf the destroyer had but one son, born of the witch Thoarka. That son also had but one son, whose mother was likewise a witch. For four centuries the race has been perpetuated thus for the desolation of Iceland there being always a single scion who never produces more than one offshoot. By this series of solitary heirs, the infernal spirit of Ingolf has been handed down to the present day and flourishes in the famous hands of Iceland, who was doubtless so happy as to occupy your virgin thoughts just now. The officer paused for an instant. Ethel was silent from embarrassment, Schumacher from vexation. Delighted to find them willing, if not to answer, at least to listen, he added, The Klipstadur outlaw's one passion is a hatred of the human race, his one thought to harm them. He is wise, abruptly remarked the old man. He always lives alone, resumed the lieutenant. He is fortunate, said Schumacher. The lieutenant was charmed by this double interruption, which seemed to seal a compact for conversation. May the god Mithra preserve us, he cried, from such wise men and such fortunate men. Accursed be the evil-minded Zephyr, which brought the last demon of Iceland to Norway. I was wrong to say evil-minded, 
for they say it was a bishop to whom we owe the pleasure of possessing Hans of Klipstadur. If we may believe the story, certain Iceland peasants, having captured little Hans among the Bessestad mountains in his infancy, were about to kill him as Astiages slew the Bactrian lion's whelp. But the bishop of Skalholt interfered and took the cub under his own protection, hoping to make a Christian of the devil. The good bishop tried in a thousand ways to develop his infernal intellect, forgetting that the hemlock cannot be changed into a lily, even in the hothouses of Babylon. So when the young devil grew up, he repaid all this care by escaping one fine night upon the trunk of a tree across the seas, <laughs> lighting his flight by setting the bishop's house on fire. <laughs> That's the old women's account of the way this Icelander came to Norway. And now, thanks to his education, he affords us a perfect type of the monster. Since then, the destruction of the pharaoh mines, the death of three hundred men crushed beneath the ruins, the overthrow of the hanging rock at Golin at midnight upon the village below, the fall of half-broad bridge from the rocks upon the high road, the burning of Trondheim Cathedral, the extinction of beacon lights upon the coast on stormy nights, and countless crimes and murders hidden in Lakes Barbo or Mjösen, or concealed in the caves of Valderhog and Rilas, and in the gorges of the Dovrefjeld, bear witness to the presence of this Ahriman incarnate in the province of Trondheim. The old women declare that a new hair grows in his beard with every fresh crime. <laughs> in that case, his beard must be as luxuriant as that of the most venerable Assyrian magi. Yet, you must have heard, fair lady, how often the governor has tried to stop the extraordinary growth of that beard. Schumacher again broke the silence. <laughs> and has every effort to capture this fellow, he asked with a look of triumph and an ironical smile, been unsuccessful. <laughs> I congratulate the chancellor. The officer did not understand the ex-chancellor's sarcasm. Hans has hitherto proved as invincible as Horatius Cocklus. Old soldiers, young militiamen, country boars, mountaineers, all fly or die before him. He is a demon who can neither be avoided nor caught. The best luck that can befall those who go in search of him is not to find him. You may be surprised, gracious lady, he went on, seating himself familiarly beside Ethel, who drew nearer to her father at all my curious anecdotes concerning this supernatural being. It was not without a purpose that I collected these strange traditions. It seems to me, and I shall be pleased if you, fair lady, share my opinion, that the adventures of Hans would make a delicious romance, after the style of Mademoiselle de Scudery's sublime stories, Artaminis or Clelia, only six volumes of which letter I have yet read but it is nonetheless a masterpiece in my eyes. Of course we should have to soften our climate, dress up our traditions, and modify our barbarous names. For instance, Trondheim, which I should call Durtinianum, should see its forest converted, by a touch of my magic wand, into delightful groves watered by a thousand streamlets far more poetic than our hideous torrents. Our dark, deep caves should give place to charming grottoes, carpeted with gilded pebbles and azure shells. In one of these grottoes should live a famous magician, Hanus of Thule, for you must own that the name Hans of Iceland is by no means agreeable. This giant, 
you must feel that it would be absurd not to make the hero of such a work a giant. This giant should descend in a direct line from the god Mars. Ingolf the destroyer affords no food for imagination. And the enchantress Theona. Don't you think I have made a happy change in the name Thoarka? Daughter of the Cumean Sibyl. Hannus, after being educated by the great Magian of Thule, should finally escape from the pontiff's palace in a car drawn by two dragons. It would be very narrow-minded to cling to the shabby old legend of the trunk of a tree. Reaching the land of Durtinianum, and ravished by that enchanting region, he should choose it as the place of his abode and the scene of his crimes. It would be no easy matter to draw an agreeable picture of the robberies of Hans. However, we might soften their horror by an ingeniously planned love affair. The shepherdess Alcipi, walking one day with her lamb in a grove of myrtles and olives, should be noticed by the giant, who should suddenly yield to the magic of her eyes. But Alcipi should love the handsome Lysidas, an officer of the militia, garrisoned in her village. The giant should be annoyed by the centurion's happiness, and the centurion by the giant's attentions. You can fancy, my dear lady, how charming such imaginative powers might make the adventures of Hannus. I will wager my Polish boots against a pair of slippers that such a subject, treated by Mademoiselle de Scudery, would set all the women in Copenhagen wild with delight. The last words roused Schumacher from the melancholy thoughts in which he had been buried during the lieutenant's fruitless display of brains. Copenhagen, he exclaimed. What news is there from Copenhagen, sir officer? None in faith that I know of, replied the lieutenant, save that the king has given his consent to the great marriage which is just now occupying the thoughts of both kingdoms. What? rejoined Schumacher. What marriage? The appearance of a fourth speaker arrested the words on the lieutenant's lips. All three looked up. The prisoner's moody features brightened, the lieutenant's frivolous face grew grave, and Ethel's sweet countenance, which had been pale and confused during the officer's long soliloquy, again beamed with life and joy. She sighed heavily, as if her heart were eased of an intolerable weight, and her sad smile rested upon the newcomer. It was Ordener. The old man, the girl, and the officer were placed in a singular position toward Ordener. They had each a secret in common with him, Therefore each felt embarrassed by the presence of the other. Ordener's return to the dungeon was no surprise to Schumacher or Ethel, who were expecting him, but it amazed the lieutenant as much as the sight of the lieutenant astonished Ordener, who might have feared some indiscretion on the part of the officer in regard to the scene of the previous night, if the silence ordained by the etiquette of duelling had not reassured him. He could therefore only be surprised at seeing him quietly seated between his two prisoners. These four persons could say nothing while together, for the very reason that they would have had much to say had they been alone. Therefore, aside from glances of intelligence and embarrassment, Ordner met with an absolutely silent reception. The lieutenant burst out laughing. <laughs> By the train of the royal mantle, my dear newcomer, here's a silence by no means unlike that of the senators of Gaul, when Brennus the Roman... Upon my honour, I have forgotten which were the Romans and which the Gauls, the senators or the general. Never mind. Since you are here, help me to enlighten this worthy old gentleman as to the news. I was just about to tell him, 
when you made your sudden entry on the stage, about the famous marriage which is now absorbing both Medes and Persians. What marriage? What marriage? asked Ordner and Schumacher with a single voice. By the cut of your clothes, sir stranger, cried the lieutenant, clapping his hands, I guess that you came from some other world. Your present question turns my doubt to certainty. You must have landed only yesterday on the banks of the Nidder in a fairy car drawn by two winged dragons, for you could not have travelled through Norway without hearing of the wonderful marriage of the Viceroy's son and the Lord Chancellor's daughter. Schumacher turned to the lieutenant. What? Is Ordener Guldenlev to marry Ulrika Dahlefeld? As you say, replied the officer and it will be all settled before the fashion of French farthingales reaches Copenhagen. Frederick's son must be about twenty-two years old, for I had been in Copenhagen Fortress a year when the news of his birth reached me. <laughs> Let him marry, young, added Schumacher with a bitter smile. When disgrace comes upon him, at least no one can accuse him of having aspired to a cardinal's hat. The old favourite alluded to one of his own misfortunes of which the lieutenant knew nothing. <laughs> no, indeed, said he, laughing heartily. Baron Ordener will receive the title of Count, the collar of the Order of the Elephant and the Colonel's epaulettes, which would scarcely match with the Cardinal's hat. So much the better, answered Schumacher. Then, after a pause, he added, shaking his head as if he saw his revenge before him, some day they may make an iron collar of his fine order. They may break his count's coronet over his head. They may strike him in the face with his colonel's epaulettes. Ordner seized the old man's hand. For the sake of your hatred, sir, do not curse an enemy's good fortune before you know whether it be good fortune in his eyes. Pooh, said the lieutenant. What are the old fellow's railings to Baron Thorwick? Lieutenant, cried Ordener. There may be more to him than you think. And, he added after a brief silence, your grand marriage is not so certain as you suppose. Fiat quod vis, rejoined the lieutenant with an ironical bow. The king, the viceroy, and the chancellor have, it is true, made every arrangement for the wedding. But if it displeases you, sir stranger, what matter the lord chancellor, the viceroy, and the king? You may be right said ordener seriously <laughs> oh by my faith and the lieutenant threw himself back in a fit of laughter <laughs> this is too good how i wish baron thorwick could hear a fortune-teller so well instructed in regard to the things of this world decide his fate believe me my learned prophet your beard is not long enough for a good sorcerer sir lieutenant coldly answered ordener I do not think that Ordener Guldenlev will ever marry a woman whom he does not love. Ha, <laughs> ha! Here we have the book of Proverbs. And who tells you, Sir Greenmantle, that the Baron does not love Ulrika Dahlefeld? And if it please you, in your turn, who tells you that he does? Here the lieutenant, as often happens, was led by the heat of the conversation into stating a fact of which he was by no means certain. Who tells me that he loves her? The question is absurd. I am sorry for your powers of divination, but everybody knows that this match is no less a marriage of inclination than of convenience. At least everybody but me, 
said Ordener gravely. Except you. So be it. But what difference does that make? You cannot prevent the Viceroy's son from being in love with the Chancellor's daughter. In love. Madly in love. He must indeed be mad to be in love with her. Hello! Don't forget of whom and to whom you speak. Would not one say that the son of the Viceroy could not take a fancy to a lady without consulting this clown? As he spoke, the officer rose. Ethel, who saw Ordener's face flush, hurried toward him. Oh, said she, pray be calm. Do not heed these insults. What does it matter to us whether the Viceroy's son loves the Chancellor's daughter or not? The gentle hand laid on the young man's heart stilled the tempest raging within. He cast an enraptured glance at his Ethel and did not hear the lieutenant, who, recovering his good humour, exclaimed, The lady acts with infinite grace the part of the Sabine woman interceding between her father and her husband. My words were rather heedless, I forgot, he added, turning to Ordner, that there is a bond of brotherhood between us, and that we can no longer provoke each other. Chevalier, give me your hand. Confess you too forgot that you were speaking of the Viceroy's son to his future brother-in-law, Lieutenant Dahlefeld. At this name Schumacher, who had hitherto looked on with an indifferent or merely an impatient eye, sprang from his stone seat with a terrible cry. Dahlefeld? A Dahlefeld here! Serpent! How could I fail to recognize the abominable father in his son? Leave me in peace in my cell! I was not condemned to the punishment of seeing you. <laughs> it only needs, as he desired just now, that the son of Guldenlev should join the son of Dahlefeld. Traitors! Cowards! Why do they not come themselves to enjoy my tears of madness and rage? Abhorred, abhorred race! Son of Dahlefeld, leave me! The officer, at first bewildered by the sharpness of these invectives, soon lost his temper and found his speech. Silence, lunatic! Cease your devilish litanies! Leave me, leave me, repeated the old man, and take my curse, my curse upon you and the miserable race of Guldenlev, which is to be allied to you. By heaven! exclaimed the enraged officer. You insult me doubly! Ordener restrained the lieutenant, who was beside himself with passion. Respect an old man, even if he be your enemy, lieutenant. We have already one question to settle together, and I will answer to you for the prisoner's offences. So be it, said the lieutenant. You contract a double debt. The fight will be to the death, for I have both my brother-in-law and myself to avenge. Think that with my gauntlet you pick up that of Ordener Guldenlev. Lieutenant Dahlefeld, replied Ordner, you espouse the cause of the absent with a warmth which proves your generosity. Would there not be as much in showing pity for an unfortunate old man to whom adversity gives some right to be unjust? Dahlefeld was one of those souls in whom virtue is kindled by praise. He pressed Ordner's hand and approached Schumacher, who, exhausted by his emotion, had sunk back upon the rock in the tearful Ethel's arms. Lord Schumacher! said the officer, you abuse the privileges of your age, and I might have abused the privileges of my youth, if you had not found a champion. I enter your prison this morning for the last time, for I come to tell you that you may henceforth remain, by special order of the Viceroy, free and unguarded in this dungeon. 
receive this good news from the lips of an enemy. Go, said the old prisoner in a hollow voice. The lieutenant bowed and obeyed, inwardly pleased that he had won the approving glance of Ordener. Schumacher sat for some time, with folded arms and bent head, buried in thought. Suddenly he looked up at Ordener, who stood before him in silence. Well, said he, my lord count, this Paulson was murdered. The old man's head again drooped upon his breast. Ordner went on. His assassin is a noted robber, Hans of Iceland. Hans of Iceland, said Schumacher. <gasps> Hans of Iceland, repeated Ethel. He robbed the captain, added Ordener. And so, said the old man, you heard nothing of an iron casket sealed with the arms of Griffenfeld. No, my lord. Schumacher hid his face in his hands. I will restore it to you, my lord count, trust me. The murder was committed yesterday morning. Hans fled toward the north. I have a guide who knows all his haunts. I have often roamed through the mountains of Trondheim. I shall overtake the thief. Ethel turned pale. Schumacher rose. His expression was almost joyful, as if he believed that virtue still existed in man. Noble Ordener, he said, farewell and raising his hand to heaven, he disappeared among the bushes. As Ordener turned, he saw Ethel upon the moss-grown rock, pale as an alabaster image on a black pedestal. "'Good God, Ethel!' he cried, rushing to her and supporting her in his arms. "'What is the matter?' "'Oh!' replied the trembling girl in scarcely audible tones. "'Oh, if you have, I do not say a spark of love, but of pity for me!' Sir, if you did not speak yesterday only to deceive me, if it be not to cause my death that you have deigned to enter this prison, Lord Ordener, my Ordener, give up, in heaven's name, in the name of all the angels, give up your mad scheme. Ordener, my beloved Ordener, she continued, and her tears flowed freely, her head rested on the young man's breast, make this sacrifice for me. Do not follow this robber, this frightful demon with whom you would fight. In whose interest do you go, Ordner? Tell me what interest can be dearer to you than that of the wretched woman, whom but yesterday you called your beloved wife. She stopped, choked by sobs. Both arms were thrown around Ordner's neck, and her pleading eyes were fixed upon his. My adored Ethel, you are needlessly alarmed. God helps the righteous cause and the interest in which I expose myself is no other than your own. That iron casket contains... Ethel interrupted him. My interest? Have I any other interest than your life? Ordener, what will become of me? Why do you think that I shall die, Ethel? Ah, then you do not know this hands, this infernal thief. Do you know what a monster you pursue? Do you know that he is lord of all the powers of darkness? that he overthrows mountains upon towns, that subterranean caverns crumble beneath his tread, that his breath extinguishes the beacons on every rocky coast. And how can you suppose, Ordner, that you can resist this giant aided by the demon with your white arms and feeble sword? And your prayers, Ethel, and the thought that I am fighting for you? Be assured, Ethel, the bandit's strength and power have been greatly exaggerated. He is a man like ourselves, who deals out death until he himself be slain. <laughs> then you will not heed me. My words are nothing to you. Tell me, what is to become of me if you go? 
if you roam from danger to danger, exposing, for I know not what earthly interest, your life, which is mine, by yielding it to a monster. Here the lieutenant's tales recurred anew to Ethel's fancy, exaggerated by her love and terror. She went on in a voice broken by sobs. I assure you, dear Ordner, they deceived you who told you that he was only a man. You should believe me rather than others, Ordner. You know that I would not mislead you. Thousands have tried to do battle with him. He has destroyed whole regiments. I only wish others would tell you the same. You might believe them and not go. Poor Ethel's prayers would doubtless have shaken Ordner's bold resolve if he had not gone so far. The words uttered by Schumacher in his despair on the previous evening came back to him and strengthened him in his purpose. I might, my dear Ethel, tell you that I would not go and yet carry out my plan, but I will never deceive you, even to console you. I ought not, I repeat, to hesitate between your tears and your true interests. Your fortune, your happiness, perhaps your life, your very life, my Ethel, are at stake and he clasped her affectionately in his arms. "'And what do I care?' she returned, weeping. "'My friend, my ordner, my delight, for you know that you are my sole delight. Do not give me a fearful and certain misery in exchange for a slight and doubtful misfortune. <laughs> what is fortune or life to me?' "'Your father's life, Ethel, is also at stake.' She tore herself from his arms. <laughs> My father's life, she repeated in a low voice, turning pale. Yes, Ethel, this brigand, doubtless bribed by Count Griffenfeld's enemies, has in his possession papers whose loss imperils the life of your father, already the object of so many attacks. I would die to win back those papers. Ethel was pale and dumb for some moments. Her tears were dried, her heaving breast labored painfully. She looked on the ground with a dull and indifferent gaze the gaze of the condemned man as the axe is lifted over his head. <sighs> My father's life, she sighed. Then she slowly turned her eyes toward Ordner. What you do is useless, but do it. Ordner pressed her to his bosom. Oh, noble girl, let me feel your heart beat against mine. Generous friend, I will soon return. Nay, you shall soon be mine. I would save your father that I may better deserve to be his son. My Ethel, my beloved Ethel. Who can describe the emotions of a true heart which feels that it is appreciated by another noble heart? And if the love uniting these two similar souls be an indissoluble bond, who can paint their indescribable raptures? It seems as if they must feel, crowded into one brief instant, all the joy and all the glory of life, embellished by the charm of generous sacrifice. Oh, my Ordner, go! And if you never return, grief will kill me. I shall have that tardy consolation. Both rose and Ordener placed Ethel's arm within his own and took that adored hand in his. They silently traversed the winding alleys of the gloomy garden and reluctantly reached the gate which led into the world. There, Ethel, drawing a pair of tiny gold scissors from her bosom, cut off a curl of her beautiful black hair. Take it, Ordener. Let it go with you. Let it be happier than I am. Ordener devotedly pressed to his lips this gift from his beloved. She added, Ordener, think of me. I will pray for you. My prayers may be as potent with God as your arms with the demon. 
Ordner bowed before this angel. His soul was too full for words. They remained clasped in each other's arms for some time. As they were about to part, perhaps forever, Ordner, with a sad thrill, enjoyed the happiness of holding Ethel to his heart once more. At last, placing a long, pure kiss upon the sweet girl's clouded brow, he rushed violently down the winding stairs, which a moment later echoed with the sweet and painful word, Farewell! End of chapter 9